If you have a Bible with you, please open it to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, in just a moment, we will be looking in verses 6 through 13 and reading from those verses. What we have in our days today is something of a need for immediacy. And this is no better seen than in our desire to communicate with one another and the type of communication that we get. I remember as we, as we close in on the, the closing of, of the building and, and the purchase of that building, um, when we first put in an offer, uh, we have to, they, they get, and they used every second of the five days, business days that, that was part of that agreement for them to make the decision to uh, agree to our uh, price. And it seemed like that took forever, five days. I could get a piano from Amazon in two, and, uh, and it's just, it takes forever. And, and we are built like this, right? So if you send a text to somebody, you expect a response in 30 seconds. If you send an email, you expect a response later that day. We look at sending mail through the post office, which used to be the only way to send mail. And they can physically deliver a letter from here across the country in two days, and we're like, that is so slow. It is amazingly slow, is what we think. Like, it's, it's a very shocking thing. Imagine what life would have been like back in the day. And imagine what life would have been like for Paul. When Paul has wrestled with his anxiety and his worry about these Thessalonians. He has left them, and they are young, and he is worried and anxious about how they are doing. And when he cannot stand it anymore, when the, the pressure has built up on him and he is about to pop, he says, well, you know, I, I can't stand it anymore. I'm going to send Timothy. But even in that, he still has to wait for Timothy to leave and then wait for Timothy to come back. Months pass. The pressure begins to build. The distress builds. The trepidation builds like a pressure cooker. This is basically how bombs work, right? And so when, by the time Timothy comes back, there is grave relief on Paul's part. Paul is excited to hear what Timothy has to report, and that is what we get to hear from God's word today. Let us read of Timothy's encouraging report to Paul, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 3. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith? Now, May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of our God. As we come to this word, let us look first at the report to Paul. In verse 6, we simply have the report that Timothy brings back to Paul, and Paul says that it is indeed good news. Somewhat striking word to use here. Almost everywhere else in Pauline literature, good news refers to the gospel. As a matter of fact, when we use the word gospel, what we mean is good news. And when we say good news, the good news of Jesus Christ should be preached, we mean the gospel should be preached. 
In so many other letters, the good news refers only to the gospel. But here he says, hearing from Timothy, he has brought us gospel of your faith. He has brought us good news of your faith and love. It's not that Timothy came back and reported to Paul again what the gospel was, but what he did was something of an echo from across a canyon. As Paul has preached the gospel to them, they on the other side of that canyon have reflected the gospel back. And what he hears then is that the gospel of Jesus Christ in the lives provides a reverberation of the good news of Jesus Christ back, that it has taken a hold of the Thessalonians, that they indeed have grasped on to the gospel, and it has impact on them. That impact is received by Paul as nothing less than good news. It is good news of their faith. The report was about nothing less than their continued trust in Jesus, even in the midst of affliction and in the midst of tribulation and persecution that Paul told them was going to come. He, they knew that it was going to come, yet all the more they have entrusted themselves to Christ. I'm, I'm always struck by the fact that of all the parables, the parable of the soils or the sower or whatever you want to say is, is always given much more text than almost any other parable. But it's so useful in so many ways. That parable talks about how seed is scattered on four different types of soil. One of them is like a hard road and it, it can't penetrate the soil at all and the birds come and they pick it up and they leave and some of it falls on rocky ground that's very thin on the soil and the plants there grow up but once the sun comes out because the plants don't have any root and the, the heat of the Palestinian summer boils those plants and they wither, they can't get water and they die. Some of them grow up amongst thorns and thistles and those thorns and thistles begin to suck the nutrients away from the good seed and it can't last and some falls on good soil and Jesus tells us what this means and in Matthew 13 verses 20 through 21 he tells us what one specific type of soil means that soil that falls on the thin rocky ground he says as for what was sown on the rocky ground this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And Paul had preached the word to the Thessalonians, and they grew up quickly. And as he leaves, what he is concerned about is that they are this type of soil, that they don't have the, the roots to go down into the soil to be able to last through the fire of this persecution and this tribulation, and he is concerned about it. And so as he sends Timothy back, what Timothy reports to him is, no, they're not the rocky soil, Paul. They are the good soil. They have roots that can last through the heat of persecution. Paul says this is indeed good news. It's not only of their faith, which is now deep and abiding, but also their love, probably of Jesus, of Paul, of Silvanus, even of Timothy. They loved them. And their continued faith and love demonstrated that the gospel of Jesus was indeed worth the persecution that they were going under. Remember, these people could easily, easily have ended the persecution and ended the affliction simply by going to any of the temples and offering worship. Even going to the synagogue and offering worship would have been a way of relieving the tension that was on them. But instead, they endured affliction and they endured persecution because they believed that hanging on to faith in Jesus Christ was worth that persecution. 
That faith is nothing less than the fact that Jesus has triumphed over death and sin. Thessalonians know that they were sinful. They knew that they were idolaters. They knew that the king, whom they had warred against, owed them nothing but death. But instead, he took their death upon him and gave them back a freedom and a life. The same gift that is given to them, that is reported as good news, is the same sort of gospel that comes to us. That just as they were rebels against the kingdom, so as we have already sung and confessed this morning, so were we. And that that free gift is given to us. That regardless of what our past is, regardless of how heinous those sins are, or how good a person you think you are, the word of God comes back to us and says, so long as you did not consider me as Lord and God, so long as you did not see fit to hear my word and to believe it and to trust it, you are a rebel to my kingdom, but there is good news. Jesus Christ can forgive your sin. He can take the penalty upon him and give you free life instead. That is the report of good news that has come to Paul, and he is very, very happy to have heard it. He says, furthermore, that you remember us kindly. That's one way of taking this. He's basically saying you have a good memory, and that can be taken in two ways. It means either that they have good memories of him, that they are happy memories. You remember us kindly. It certainly does mean at least that. They have fond memories of Paul. That is, the reports that have come to them of how Paul perhaps is greedy, or he is a peddler of God's word, or he is just using you, is not how they recall what Paul has done. That they remember Paul as a good person. They have good memories of Paul. When they think of Paul, they don't think of putting up with Paul. They think of all the good things about Paul and Sylvanus. But they're also right memories. Because you can have good memories of things and not remember those things correctly. So it's not just that they're happy memories. It's that they are correct memories. Paul has already mentioned this. Remember back in verses 9 and 10 and 11 of chapter 2, he says, You remember you know you were witnesses. These Thessalonians understand who Paul is and they have right and adequate memories of who Paul is and what Paul did. They remember him well, but they also remember him rightly. And there is, it's, it's interesting, this passage is basically a sort of reverberation from the very attitude that Paul has towards the Thessalonians, that he loves them, that he cares for them. And what he hears back from Timothy from a distance is they, they have the same love for you, Paul. It's, it's almost like sending your friend over to the girl in high school and saying, I like like her, does she like like me? And you gotta wait for the news to come back. And the news comes back, yeah, she does. I remember when I proposed to my wife, speaking of not wanting long delays, I proposed to her and I had the ring out and I, was, I asked her, and I knew that she was going to say yes, but there was like a half a second there. And in that half a second, my lizard brain said, you've got to get this ring on her finger, like now. And so even before she said yes, I was shoving it as hard as I could onto her finger. I don't know if, if I thought that, like, if I get it on there, she can't say no. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, in that, in that moment, she, she said yes, it was a good story. Um, <laughs> In that moment, you're always so concerned about the embarrassment. I was concerned that I had just bought her a really nice meal, and I can get money back for the ring, but that meal is gone now, right? Like, she, if she says no, we're in trouble here. So Paul, Paul is waiting for that word to be returned. He, he cares about the Thessalonians. He loves them, and the report comes back, and it's, 
it's good. And this then has, secondly, a result on Paul. So what is the result on Paul? The report to Paul is good. What is the result on Paul? He says, well, I am comforted by it. Paul puts a ton of joy and a ton of health, of his own health, into these churches. He talks about the fact that he is anxious and he worries about them. And so as they do well, Paul does well. As they go down and they suffer and they, they fumble with their faith, so Paul also has difficulty with that. And I'm reminded of another Paul, Paul Simon, in his song, I Am a Rock. And he sings, I am a rock, I am an island. And the whole point of that is that this gentleman has, has gone through pain in his life. And so what he has decided to do is to make himself impenetrable like a rock, that he cannot have anybody hurt him. They can't get to him anymore. And he's an island. He's going to isolate himself from them. Certainly, this is a way to protect yourself from being hurt by other people. It seems like it might be a good way to protect yourself. But isolation and hardening can't keep hurt from you. As a matter of fact, it is a very clear indication that you're just going to be hurt all the time now. Paul knows better. He's willing to take the risk of being hurt by the Thessalonians because he's also understanding that there is great comfort in them. All the more when that love is sealed by the blood of Christ, he trusts that Jesus is going to do the work that he has called him to do. And one of the most amazing things about these two verses, in verses 7 and 8, when he hears back and he is comforted by them, is that he is not comforted by their physical health. We hear absolutely nothing in this letter of how the Thessalonians are doing physically. Certainly they're going through tribulation, they're going through persecution, and you would expect that Paul, of all people, might have understood what it meant to do that. He was the one who had suffered beatings, he had suffered lashings, he had suffered stonings, he had been through riots, he had been through imprisonments. Of, of anybody who might worry and say, I know what these persecutions and these afflictions are like, how are you doing? How is your body? Are you guys healthy? He doesn't seem concerned about that at all. As a matter of fact, in the entirety of the letter, really the only information we get is that people there are dying. This seems to be the problem that comes up, the thing that Paul has to supply and lacking in their faith are these questions about the coming of the Lord and how people who have died before he comes will live before him. But Paul doesn't ask about that. He is comforted not by their physical health. He is comforted, moreover, by their spiritual health. Life is more than just the body, and Paul knew it. He's comforted. And notice how he's comforted. He is comforted in all our distress and affliction. We have been comforted, he says. Not that your news that's come to us relieves us of that affliction and distress. Now, certainly some of that was spiritual. Some of that was his anxiety and his worry, and now he is comforted and salved in his soul. But it's hard to hear Paul say things like that and not think that there was also physical stress on him. This was part and parcel of his work. And yet he is comforted, not in his body, but in his soul, by the fact that these Thessalonians long to see him, that they have a faith that is steadfast, that they are enduring persecution and affliction. Paul's life is bound up with theirs. He says, somewhat hyperbolically, 
not somewhat, I don't know how you can do something somewhat hyperbolically, but hyperbolically he says that because you stand firm in Christ, we live. His life is theirs. As they live in the Lord, so then Paul also lives. His life is bound up with theirs. His work has not been in vain. His suffering has not been in vain. Paul's joy is not simply the relief of their physical pain, but it is their spiritual flourishing. And in this, not only do they say that their spiritual work in Christ is worth it, their spiritual standing in Christ is worth the suffering, Paul says the same. In Colossians 1, Paul writes these astonishing words. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And I in my flesh am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Later on he will say, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for all those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. He doesn't just say, I'm happy that I suffer. He says that I'm happy that I suffer for you. I'm happy that I suffer in sending the mission word out. I'm happy that I suffer in bringing the gospel to you to make the word of God fully known. Not only for the people that I get to see, I'm happy that I suffer even for those who have not seen me face to face. He is happy to suffer because it is worth it for him. It's worth it for them to be spiritually right with the Lord. I don't think that we act like this often when we talk about people who are being persecuted. I think that we often worry mostly about their physical health. When we think of our friends in China, or we we think of people in Muslim contexts, And we know that in those Muslim contexts, oftentimes people who are saved in those contexts face threats of imprisonment and even death and beheading from their families, from the authorities, from all of the the situation that they find themselves in, that there there is death waiting for them. And what we are concerned about, first and foremost, quite often, is their physical health. Why? Why are we so concerned with their physical health? If Paul's just great happiness and praise here, if the result of Paul's comfort has nothing to do with their physical well-being, perhaps it's because we're certain that Christ has them and they won't lose faith. That could be true, sure. But I think that it probably also indicates something of a lack of understanding on our side of what truly matters, or what's worse, our own fears. Our fear for persecution is not likely that we would lose faith, but our fear is probably simply that we would suffer. Does persecution bother you because you're squeamish? Or does it bother you because you honestly fear that you would turn from Christ? Both of those are real fears, but one of them is a lot more important. And especially as we pray for those who are persecuted. Yes, you should pray that that persecution comes to an end. But what's more important is to pray that they will live through that persecution in faith. In faith. We've heard of the report to Paul, the result on Paul. And thirdly, we need to talk about the response of Paul. In verses 9 and 10, Paul's writing becomes 
difficult to track. I don't know how else to say it. It's messy. He is writing so quickly, and he's writing things that don't quite match together. And, and even as you read 9 and 10 out loud, you realize even in English that it doesn't sound quite right. There's something kind of odd about it. And I want to take just a second to remind you of what we say when we talk about inspiration. We're, we don't mean that the Holy Spirit dictated to Paul what he was to write down here. So the Spirit, did, the Spirit didn't come to him and say, hey, Paul, make kind of a mess of the sentence, if you would, in your exuberation. I would really appreciate that. I'll smooth it out for people later on. But Paul, as a human being, is filled with emotion and writes like he's filled with emotion. And then at the same time, the Spirit says, that is precisely what I wanted you to write. These are honest and probably quite immediate and heartfelt words from a man who is incredibly relieved to hear this good news. Basically what he says in these verses is that he wanted to thank God. He, he wants to thank God. He's trying to thank God. But what comes out is this rhetorical question about like, how can my thankfulness be enough? My, my joy in hearing this report back that you are all doing well is so grand and so great that I don't know what kind of thanksgiving I ought to utter to God in order to make it sound right. So language is failing me. Paul knew a couple of languages. He probably tried it in Hebrew, he tried it in Aramaic, he tried it in Greek, and he's like, they all fail me. I can't think of the words to actually utter that would make this sound right. The words thank you and talking about thankfulness they just fail. Listen, when, when you're out to eat and the waiter or waitresses comes and fills up your glass and you say thank you, you probably mean that and it's probably enough. You should mean it and she or he should accept that as enough. It, it probably is adequate. They, they work out. You are as thankful as you are making it clear that you're thankful. But we use that exact same word, thank you, to talk to God about what he has done for us. That doesn't seem fair. We say thank you to the waiter who fills up our water. That's great. I can find water almost anywhere. And we also say thank you to God who has saved us from our sins, who has kept us from an eternity of punishment, who has given great and magnificent gifts to his church and to his people. There's a, a song by Bob Coughlin, who we've already sung one of his songs today. Uh, but we, we don't sing here, and it's not because of what I'm about to say. It's a perfectly good song. But the song is called Jesus, Thank You. And in the song, he basically just goes over what Jesus does, and he says, Jesus, thank you. And it always just hits me as so flat. Like, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. That waiter came and filled up my cup. Waiter, thank you. Like, it, it rings the same. And you're, and you're like, this is just flat. But you realize that there are, I don't know, 300,000 words in the English language. Which ones are you going to string together to make the thank you right? Paul says, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? It, it almost means like to pay him back is really what Paul means here. What kind of thanksgiving can we give to God that is going to make this marvelous news good with him? that we can say, this is enough to thank him for what he has done. Paul clearly can't, 
can't come up with them. And it's not that he hasn't tried. Go back to chapter 1, verse 2, and he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. He says, we, We've tried. Like, we give thanks to God all the time, every time we think of you, continuously. This is the same letter, so he's already gotten this good report. He says, we're trying. I don't know what kind of words we should use, but we're trying. This is the way that God always works, just incredibly gracious. In 2 Samuel 7, David comes to the Lord, and at this point in time, David has been established as the king, and he says, listen, God is traveling around in this tent I don't want God to travel around in a tent anymore. I want to build him a temple. So he goes to the prophet and he says, hey, I want to do this. And the prophet speaks before he actually goes to the Lord. And Nathan says, yeah, yeah, sure, go. Um, turns out that that was a little hasty. And so God comes to the prophet and says, now go back to David and tell him that plan's off. You're not going to build me a temple, but I will build you a house. So the word for temple, the word for house, they're all the same. And what he means is you wanted to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make your lineage great, and I will bring a great son out of it. David hears this, and he responds to God. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. What more can David say to you? God comes to him and he says, I don't really know what I'm supposed to say. Thank you. Like he, David has the exact same response. God comes and he gives you things and he tells you to give him thanks. It's right and appropriate to give him thanks. But those who truly appreciate what God has done for them realize that there's no amount of thanks that you can possibly give. Paul's response falls flat, and yet all he can do is give it all the more, and all the more, and all the more. I'm reminded last week that we talked about the fact that God's sovereignty doesn't mean we get to hide our apathy behind it. That we don't get to say that because God is sovereign, he will do what he wants, and therefore we can be apathetic in our love. But you also can't hide our joy from God's sovereignty. Paul knows very well why he is happy and why he's giving thanks. He doesn't say, we're so thankful, Thessalonians, to you for the good work that you're doing here. There's a time and a place for things like that, but Paul's very clear. We give thanks to God for the good work that's being done here. It is God who has worked your faith. It is God who has kept you near. It is God who strengthens you and presses you through the persecution. It is due to God. He knows the one whom he ought to thank. James 1, 16 and 17 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There is nothing that is given to you in this world that is good. There is nothing that is given to you that is kind, that is merciful, that is gracious, that does not ultimately come from God. Whether that is a filled glass of water or it is salvation from the eternal wrath of God, all of it comes from God. And you are deceived if you think for a second that he doesn't deserve thanks for it. So this gloriousness of God's incredible graciousness ought to stun us. And the response 
that Paul gives is thankfulness, but then he does something else, and that's number four. He requests. Let's look now at the request from Paul. This is absolutely stunning. He's already been given more than he can possibly thank God for. So the debt is mounting every minute, and then he has the audacity to go back to God and ask him for all the more. I'm reminded there's probably a better proverb or some sort of pithy statement for this, but I was reminded of the children's book, if you give a mouse a cookie. Mouse shows up at your door and you give him a cookie, he's gonna want some milk. And if you give him some milk, he's gonna want a mirror to make sure he doesn't have milk on his face. If you give him the mirror, he's gonna want a trim, yada, yada, yada. Basically, it just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing. And Paul is that mouse. God has given him good things and Paul says, oh yeah, about those good things, I want more of them. Notice the things that he asks for are basically the things that he's just been given, only better. This is great, thank you, God. Give me more. It's a good report. That's fantastic. Let me go there and hear it in person. Let me go there and see it with my own eyes. Their, their love is there for us. Their love, good news of faith and love, he says back in verse 6. And now he says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Their, their love is strong. That's great. Let it go. Let it grow. Let it grow. Paul knows this isn't a greedy reaction. He knows very well the God who he's dealing with. Psalm 16:11 says, "You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore." Friend, you do not want so much that God cannot fulfill all of the desires of your heart. You cannot extinguish the good gifts of God. It is rare, and so rare, that I would say never, that you ask for too much from God. He's not stingy. He's not limited. You don't have to make up for what he already gave you before he gives you more. I have to tell my kids all the time, I think that what, what you have is enough. Be happy with that. You know what the Father never says to you? Be happy with that. There are pleasures forevermore. So Paul turns to him says, give us more. He says, I want both the Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling on both the Father and the Son to clear the way so that they might be able to make a presence before you. Not simply to hear about this good report and to hear about your faith and to hear about your love, but I want to be present with you to have you tell me, to show me, so that I can show you that I love you and care about you. And he says even more, that they should abound in love. Listen, I read this week and I think this is helpful. Orthodoxy is not an end in itself. So we, we hold doctrine and we preach doctrine and we teach doctrine not simply so that we can hang on to doctrine. Doctrine's not that important that it becomes an end in itself. The end is always love. It is a rightfully directed and placed love. The first command, the greatest command, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and spirit, and your neighbor as yourself. It is not to have all the right doctrine. It just so happens that you can't do that without the right doctrine. But the end is always love. So Paul 
who wants them to have a love for one another. He wants that sort of love to be blameless, and blameless, he says, in holiness before our God and Father. You can have all the love in the world, and it can be pointed in all the wrong directions. Your love, just because you have it, doesn't mean that it's worthy of God's time and affection. Love can be evilly spent. In John 13, we are reminded that this is the kind of love that we should have for one another. That just as Jesus has loved us, so we love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. The whole point of him saying that, and, and the way it kind of fits into the context of 1 Thessalonians here is, that when Jesus comes, their love will be an establishment for them, so that there will be no doubt that they belong to this Jesus. That they have loved one another, and they have loved Paul, and they have loved everyone, just as the Lord Jesus Christ did. And so they are established in the presence of his coming with his saints. But again, it must be blameless. It must be holy. It must be pointed in the right direction. John 3.19 says, The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Your love can be abounding in all of the wrong directions. And it can bring upon you nothing but the wrath of God. Paul doesn't want their love simply to abound so that they're overflowing. He wants their love to be pointed at the right things and at good things and at true things. Society does this, by the way. Society wants your loves to be pointed at the right people who say the right things, who act the right way, and who uphold the right things. Society is as much sort of closed-minded on this as Paul is. What we need then is to be shaped not by society and not by the things that they tell us we ought to love, but by God's word and what he tells us we ought to love. Romans 12 says, Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the purpose of preaching doctrine. That's the purpose of teaching doctrine. Doctrine helps put bumpers on where our love ought to go. It can go here. It should not go here. And it's directed in this path so that we might love rightly. And this, friends, is all so that we would love and be established even before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that when he comes, we will not cower in fear, but our love will be an establishment showing to the world and to one another that this is our Christ, and he has worked in us this way. I, like many of you, have just so much to be thankful for. I have a wonderful wife who is very caring and kind and gracious, who says yes when she needs to, on time. She even said it at the wedding. It wasn't just that one time. <laughs> we have three kids who are quite often blessings, almost always. I'm coming up on four years here. And like I said last week in the evening service, it's been incredible blessed years. They've gone by so fast because serving here is a joy. It's not filled with groaning and, and aching. And those groans and aches probably just come from me getting older, and they're not actually from you all. 
I should be thankful for all those and, and thankful to God for all of those things. And you should oftentimes take stock of the good things that God has given to you and to thank him for those things. To thank him for the work that he is doing in others. To thank him that the gospel is going out and it's making a difference. To look at the brothers and sisters that you have in this church and to say, I am thankful that the Lord is working in their lives. I am thankful that his grace has come upon them. I am thankful that they are not destined for hell, but rather in knowing the Lord Jesus are, are, are destined for an eternal inheritance in Jesus Christ our Lord. And then how much more thankful are we that we know God? But of all of the gifts that he gives to us, this is what we are thankful for. That Jesus Christ has made himself known. That he has given us his name. That we are called by that name. We should boast in the fact that we know the Lord and that the Lord knows us. Let us always give thanks for that. Let us start now. Will you pray with me? Father, help us to be faithful amidst persecution to realize the greatness of your love for us. You desire to give us great and mighty things, more wonderful than we can realize, hear, or imagine. Let us, therefore, lift up our thankfulness to you. Even if that thankfulness falls short of uttering what we know and feel in our hearts, let us also ask more from you, for your goodness knows no bounds, and you have an eternity of good to give to us. But in doing so, Father, we pray that you might not lead us into temptation, but give us that which will establish us for the day of your Son's coming to judge both the living and the dead. For to him we run, that we might not fall under his wrath. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.